I want to talk about the ICJ ruling. Is there something that is missing from this order that if it had been added would have caused the bombs to stop? The answer to that is no. It's more than sufficient wording that requires Israel to stop entirely its assault on Gaza. Use it as a tool to exert more pressure on the relevant governments, institutions to achieve the political solution that we want, an end to the Israeli siege of Gaza, an end to the occupation and dismantlement of Israel's settler colonial apartheid regime. Obviously, if you're on the ground in Gaza, the number one thing that matters is a permanent and immediate ceasefire. 93% of Gaza is facing, quote, crisis levels of hunger. There is a lot circulating right now and not too sure that a lot of the people that are commenting have actually read it fully. I get all of my legal analysis from meme pages. Okay. Hello and welcome to episode 113 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lari. You might know me from Instagram as at Gaz and Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you are a Zionist propagandist who thinks you won the case at the ICJ. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. And give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. You can also find us on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional podcasts per week. It's called the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. I want to talk about the ICJ ruling today. I've had now 30 hours to digest it, read it read the declarations that were filed along with it and i obviously watched the session where the court actually the president of the court read it out loud I've seen a lot of analyses some by lawyers some by lay people some by influencers certainly a mixed response from the palestinian community whether it be on the ground or in exile and I think it's important to have one episode where we discuss it and then we can move on. As our friend Rabia said, that we don't want to get too hung up on it. We want to take what's good from it and use it and as a means to keep pushing forward for what we absolutely need, which is a ceasefire. And that is the most important thing. And the way that the order is worded is done in such a way that we can take the text and use it to exert more pressure to obtain a ceasefire. It is a tool, this order, to be used in furtherance of that goal. And I want to discuss some of the critiques that I've seen in the last 24 hours or so and just give sort of the legal perspective on all of this because I think it's easy to start making comments but it takes time to to process the wording of the order. And obviously, it's a legal ruling. And so I think we should turn to, first and foremost, what the lawyers are saying. Obviously, if you're on the ground in Gaza, 
the number one thing that matters is, of course, a permanent and immediate ceasefire. There's no disputing that and what it means and how we can use it going forward. Because I think there is a lot circulating right now. And I, I'm not too sure that a lot of the people that are commenting on it, especially non-lawyers, have actually read it fully. And even if they had read it, I'm not sure that it's actually clear to lay people what the order is actually saying. And I do think that- it No, 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 no. I get all of my legal analysis from meme pages. Okay. No, it's just, look, it's, it's a legal- text so it requires somebody with some knowledge of the law to understand what it means and then to explain it and i think that yes i beg of you people i beg of you to stop postulating on this decision you have not read okay I, listen to palestinian lawyers dr yeah. nora erica lara okay diana butu they are all giving the same analysis that this is a win. This is good. Stop trying to give our wins away. Yeah. Yeah. No, and look, I mean, I understand that part of it comes from, you know, people who are on the ground who obviously are like, we need the bombs to stop. And that's 100% undeniable. Like, nobody is denying that. The question, however, that's relevant here is, is there something that is missing from this order that if it had been added would have caused the bombs to stop? And the answer to that is no. The answer to that is no, because the language of the order as it is currently stated contains more than sufficient wording that requires Israel to stop entirely its assault on Gaza. And that's a really important point to understand. When you read the language of the order as it is currently worded, there is more than enough language that if Israel were to actually comply with the order, it would require Israel to halt entirely its military assault on Gaza. They didn't say ceasefire now because they're not a bunch of anti-Zionist Jews blocking traffic. It's a Yes. Right. Okay. So, so yes, I mean, that's a great point, actually, because I think, so part of the, part of the frustration, I think, from, from the individuals who did critique it is that the specific express word ceasefire was not used, right? So on that point, you have to go back to South Africa's request and note that South Africa actually never made a request that the court order a quote-unquote ceasefire. Now, the court is free in any event to adopt the provisional measures that it deems appropriate, whether or not they were the specific ones that were actually requested. And they even actually recalled that in their order. South Africa, however, did request an order, and this is where it gets a little bit technical, that the court order Israel to, quote, immediately suspend its military operations in and against Gaza. Now, that specific request for provisional measures was not ordered. However, I'm going to repeat what I said at the beginning a third time. What was ordered is more than sufficient to require Israel to halt its military assault on Gaza. And the reality is that in the 24 hours since now this order was rendered, Israel is in violation of it. And that is what we have to take moving forward as a tool to exert more pressure on the relevant governments, institutions, and stakeholders in order to achieve the political solution that we want, which is a ceasefire now, an end to the Israeli siege of Gaza, an end to the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, and an end, 
and dismantlement of Israel's settler colonial apartheid regime. Okay, but I want to get into the analysis from the very beginning. So we're going to go back to the top. Maybe maybe throw in right of return as well. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's implied when you break down the, when I say, when I, I don't know say, that it is. Some people are very dumb. So <laughs> okay. I would just say it. To clarify, when I say that the settler colonial apartheid regime should be dismantled, I am also speaking in particular about the full right of return of Palestinian refugees. To me, that is implied in the dismantlement of Israel as a settler colony. So that would have to be addressed under the dismantlement of the settler colony. But it is worth expressly stating, when you read the language of the order, the court begins with the immediate context, quote-unquote, of Hamas's attack of October 7th and Israel's, quote-unquote, large-scale military operation by land, air, and sea, which is causing massive civilian casualties, extensive destruction of civilian infrastructure, and displacement of the overwhelming majority of the population in Gaza, end quote. The court did not mention any context prior to October 7th. Now, if you remember in South Africa's opening statement, they immediately contextualized the situation in Palestine by referring to the Nakba and referring to 75 years of dispossession, expulsion, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. The court did not address those facts. So the immediate context was recalled and then the court proceeded. On the first question, the first legal question on the existence of a dispute, which remember, Israel has challenged. Their advocate, the barrister Malcolm Shaw, challenged that there was a dispute, a legal dispute between Israel and South Africa in this case. The court rejected this formalistic argument by Israel, and they affirmed the existence of a dispute between South Africa and Israel under the Genocide Convention. On the question of jurisdiction, which is the most important legal question in this case, the court decided, and I quote, at least some of the acts and omissions alleged by South Africa to have been committed by Israel in Gaza appear to be capable of falling within the provisions of the convention, end quote, thereby confirming that it is plausible that Israel is in violation of its obligations under this genocide convention and rejecting Israel's arguments to the contrary. Now, the court did not specify in particular which acts it considered to be plausibly in violation of the convention, but when you read the order of the court, the court actually refers to many of the acts of death and destruction and devastation that have been carried out by Israel in the last several months. So, for example, the court considered that according to UN sources, Israel's attack has resulted in the killing of at least 25,000 Palestinians, the injuring of, of over 63,000 Palestinians, and the destruction of 360,000 houses, as well as the displacement of 1.7 million people in Gaza. The court furthermore took note of the statement by the UN Undersecretary for Human Affairs and the Emergency Relief Coordinator, Martin Griffiths, who said that Gaza is, quote, a place of death and despair, end quote, and is now uninhabitable, as well as the WHO statement that 93% of Gaza is facing, quote, crisis levels of hunger. The court furthermore took note of the statement by the UNRWA Commissioner General, that the vast majority of children in Gaza are deeply traumatized, quote, thousands have been, 
quote, killed, maimed, and orphaned, noting that their future is in jeopardy with far-reaching and long-lasting consequences. And the court also, with respect to genocidal intent, recalled three statements of genocidal intent, reading them back to Israel on the day that the order was rendered. In particular, the court read the quote, of the Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, on the complete siege, we're all familiar with it by now, as well as his quote referring to Palestinians as human animals and saying that we will eliminate everything, as well as the President Isaac Herzog's quote that it's, quote, not true that civilians are not involved. They furthermore cited to the Minister of Energy's quote that they will not receive a drop of water or a single battery until they leave the world. Okay. That was only just one day's worth of quotes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what's crazy is that most of these quotes, like these three quotes, there's now, by now, a database of over 500 quotes of genocidal intent made at every level of Israeli government, society, journalists, public figures. Law for Palestine has created this database, and the court in this case relied on only three to say that there was a plausible case of Israel violating the genocide convention. Imagine what happens when the case goes to the merits now, because that's since been confirmed. Imagine what happens when they bring forward the 500 quotes and actually develop this case in full on, on the facts. I mean, I heard that one of the kids over there, their first words was Amalek. Yeah. So, okay, let's go back to why this is relevant. This is relevant because the court's reference to these statements of death and destruction and suffering, as well as its recollection of these three statements of genocidal intent is what the court relied on to find that they had jurisdiction in this case. And what did they have to find in order to find that they had jurisdiction in case? All they had to find was that it was plausible that Israel's in violation of the genocide convention. Now, plausibility is a low bar, right? They didn't have to meet a high threshold. But it's it's very important to note that they did that through reference to the arguments that were laid out expertly by the South African team. The South African team gave them more than enough to work with. The court's order, in a sense, wrote itself because it was very easy for them to just pick from the barrage of quotes from UN agencies and UN officials, human rights organizations, and other international organizations like the WHO, as well as statements of genocidal intent of the Israeli officials. And that made it really easy for the court to find that there was a plausible case of violations of the Genocide Convention. When you compare that to how Israel argued their case, they didn't have any quotes from UN officials because there hasn't been a single UN official that has argued that what Israel is doing is justifiable or is legal. They didn't have a single quote. South Africa's brief was filled with quotes from individuals in the UN and UN agencies. And I think this is powerful and relevant because the court is the highest body, judicial body of the United Nations. So when everybody in the UN is saying that we're worried about genocide, this looks like genocide, it also makes sense that the court would find in this way. And Israel, on the other hand, simply doesn't have any evidence of that sort. Now we can talk about how they constructed their defense and you know, there's a lot to be said about that. When I was on George Galloway, he said that it, they they sank to the occasion. Mm, and That's true. <laughs> they found tunnels in Crown Heights and sank to the occasion. Right, right. By the way, really quickly, I think we can all agree Palestinians way better at building tunnels. Look, I don't even know. Do we even know what those tunnels are for? Like, I mean, we're not going to speculate on what they're for, but just structurally, Palestinians did it better. We can talk about Israel's defense. Almost none of it was legally relevant. Some commentators, I was watching uh, Craig Mohiber uh, and uh, Norman Finkelstein on Katie Halper's show, 
And they were saying how they thought that because they didn't bring up a legally relevant defense, they thought that Israel's defense was constructed as merely a plea to a Western audience in order to be able to continue to promote their propaganda politically before a Western audience that they kind of already had understood that they were going to lose the case, but they were going to accept the platform anyway in order to be able to continue to make emotional, legally irrelevant appeals to try to continue to manage the propaganda here. I'm actually, I find that actually very convincing. And Norman Finkelstein reminded us that in 2004, when Israel was called before the International Court of Justice in the case on the legality of the wall, they only participated in the jurisdictional phase of the case. And they didn't show up for the merits once the court affirmed jurisdiction. They were like, screw this, because they don't participate because they're always acting defiantly and they don't respect international law. But they did provide a quote from Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> what? Because he fell off the wall. Oh. <laughs> wow. Okay. The fact that I have to explain every single joke. Not every single uh, one. Literally not I every know. single one. Just kidding. I love just, you. Keep going. I'm just like in this. I've been married. I don't know. You're sort of in a thing and you're not really in a great place to receive comedy, which is great for me as a comedian. Okay. All right. So let's go back to analyzing the decision. <laughs> so the court finds jurisdiction. The court finds that it's plausible that Israel is committing a violation of the Genocide Convention. And that means the case will now go to the merits and that we will now, within a few years, have a decision on the merits that will cement Israel undeniably as a genocidal regime. Okay. On the remaining arguments, on the risk of irreparable prejudice or urgency, which is one of the legal elements that is required in order for the court to order provisional measures, the court noted that this was present, citing to the Secretary General of the UN statement that the situation is fast deteriorating into a catastrophe and that nowhere is safe in Gaza. And this is also very interesting. The court was not fooled by Israel's statements that it took certain steps to protect civilians in Gaza, and therefore there was no urgency, right? Remember remember the insane statement that their lawyers made, that they said, there's no urgency here. I mean, what a just losing argument. The court was not fooled by that. And they said that Israel's declaration that it's investigating incitement to genocide and that its demonstration or, or argument that it took certain steps to protect civilians in Gaza were completely insufficient to remove the risk of irreparable prejudice, which confirmed the urgency and necessity of provisional measures. The court basically said, whatever you said you did to try to help civilians in Gaza was ineffective and didn't actually help them. So there is urgency here. Therefore, we're going to order provisional measures. So until now, Israel has lost every single legal argument that it put before the court. And not enough emphasis is being made on this in the analysis that we're seeing. And then some people were like, and we lost. And it's like, oh, maybe you don't understand. And that's okay. But don't spread that information to a large platform of people so that people adopt the defeatist mentality, right? Because it's like, it's everything all at once. That's what Nkosi Mandela said, right? He said, it's everything all at once. So it's the people on the ground who are there. It's the people on the outside building pressure from the outside in. It's the corporations who are pulling out and feeling the boycott, right? It is the governments who are severing ties because they're feeling the pressure. 
It is the politicians who are being cornered in restaurants and being screamed at. It is everything all at once. It is this decision as well. It is the preponderance of evidence, the building of momentum. And so when people who have no fucking idea what they are talking about try to frame this as a loss, they are helping Zionist propagandists. There are literal Zionists who are on TikTok talking about how this was a full win for them. And it's like, do you want to be providing information that supports that narrative? Look, I think that part of the difficulty is that there may have been a misunderstanding about what the court was being asked to do. People think that the court was being asked to order a ceasefire. That's not true. The court was not being asked to order a ceasefire in that terminology. As I said in the beginning, one of the provisional measures requested by South Africa was that the court order a cessation of military activity by Israel. Now, the court did not order that, but what they did order, and I'll explain that right now, includes that implicitly. And that's the part that is not being understood here. And so I'm going to show, I'm going to explain that right now. All right. So let's get into what provisional measures were ordered. And I just want to say that the provisional measures that were ordered were ordered by an overwhelming majority of judges near unanimity for each measure. Even the Israeli judge voted for aid and for punishing incitement. The Ugandan judge was the only one who voted against every single measure. And Norman Finkelstein said that there's no way that she wrote her dissenting opinion and he thinks she was paid off and that some, he's like, there's, you cannot convince me that she wrote that opinion. It was a very funny segment. I also saw commentary coming from Uganda, like, we don't know her, we don't claim her. Yes, uh, Ugandan judge voted against everything, but she was alone. Even the Israeli judge voted for some provisional measures. And every other member of the court, including the German judge, including the American judge, who's also the president of the court right now, voted in favor of all the provisional measures. Now, I think it is relevant to note that at least myself, some other people, were concerned that the American judge and other judges would not vote in a manner that they correctly apply the law and that they would be pressured by the political positions of the countries. Judges are supposed to be independent, of course, but the interpretation of the law is never divorced from a political reality. And so there's this fear that somehow they would have rendered a decision that either would have denied jurisdiction, that would have said it wasn't really plausible, that would have said, oh, you know, that would have taken into account Israel's irrelevant legal arguments, and that would have found a way to dismiss the case. That was a real fear. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. And I, we have to be very clear about the fact that Israel is trying to spin doctor this into a win. And the way that they're doing it is extremely disingenuous, extremely disingenuous. Netanyahu said that the court affirmed that Israel has a right to defend itself. The court did not discuss the notion of self-defense whatsoever in the order. It's simply not in the order. So the court did not say that. That's actually him just lying about what the court said. Yeah, Netanyahu got on the mic and he said, the court found that I am innocent of corruption. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's really important to note that, that they didn't mention defense. They did not mention defense. The only time the word self-defense appears in the order 
is when the court is actually restating the party's arguments. So they say Israel argued that it has a right of self-defense, but the court never said anything about that. So that's not true. So they are out here blatantly lying about what the order says. And the reason they're doing that is because it's a damning order for them. The legal findings that are in this order are damning. And that's why they're lying about it. Okay. We keep getting I sidetracked. Mean, they are also lying about it because they are serial liars. Like <laughs> they wouldn't know how to tell the truth if they could. Correct. Okay. Well, I'm going to go through them now. The first one by a vote of 15 to two in favor. The court ordered Israel to take, quote, all measures within its power to prevent the commission of genocidal acts set out in Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. Okay, let's analyze this for a second. All measures within its power to prevent, prevent the commission of genocidal acts. What are the genocidal acts at Article 2? Are killing Palestinians, wounding Palestinians physically or mentally, measures to prevent births, and the last one, stealing Palestinian children, okay? So the court is ordering Israel to take all measures within its power. It's stealing children? Yemen entered the chat? The Yemenite affair. Oh, yes. So all measures within its power, it could have ordered something much less, like just reasonable measures or measures, not even measures within its power, just measures could be, it, it, the bar could have been much lower. That was the first provisional measure. Now, the second one is much more interesting. And the second provisional measure is the one that in my view, and I think the view of many other lawyers who have read this order, contains in it the necessity for Israel to halt its military operation in Gaza altogether. Okay, here's the second provisional measure. By a vote of 15 to 2, in favor, the court ordered that Israel, quote, shall ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit any acts described under Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, shall ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit genocidal acts. What are the genocidal acts? Killing Palestinians, wounding Palestinians, stealing their babies, or taking measures to prevent births. So the court is saying as of the rendering of the order, with immediate effect, Israel must stop killing Palestinians, must stop wounding Palestinians. There is no way to, uh, to respect or comply with that order if not through a ceasefire on the part of Israel. There simply is no way. You cannot tell me that Israel can continue to bomb Gaza, but act in compliance with this order that is telling it that it must, uses the word shall, shall ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit any genocidal acts. This is the provisional measure which contains in it the need to halt the military activity. And this is what people have not understood. People think that the order does not contain in it language that would require Israel to stop its military operations in Gaza. That is not true. Let's go into the next one. The third provisional measure that was ordered by a vote of 16 to 1 in favor the court ordered that Israel shall take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide. 
Fourth provisional measure, by a vote of 16 to 1 in favor, the court ordered that Israel shall take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Fifth provisional measure, by a vote of 15 to 2 in favor, the court orders that Israel shall take effective measures to prevent the destruction and ensure the preservation of evidence related to allegations of acts within the scope of Article 2 and Article 3 of the convention. The court says to Israel, essentially, you must preserve evidence. You cannot destroy evidence that is relevant to your violations of the genocide convention. And the last provisional measure that the court ordered was that it told Israel that Israel must report in one month on its compliance with these provisional measures. And it affirmed, the court also affirmed that it will give South Africa an opportunity to respond. This is important because it means that the court is now watching Israel. Now, I understand people's frustration. A month, there is this frustration with what the law is able to do. But people have to understand that the law is not the way on its own, singularly, to achieve the outcome that we need. This order gives us a tool, another tool in our toolbox to be able to continue to put more pressure where it is needed. But in and of itself, it does not have the power to create the result that we need simply because the court has rendered it. And I think that that is the true frustration of people who have who have expressed that they are frustrated by this order. I don't think it's so much the absence of the word ceasefire. I think that's what people have been expressing. I think it absolutely is that. No, I, I don't think, think people fully do not understand the court's order. They were looking for a word they do understand, and it's not there. Right. And so you have some people who have like a platform who were also upset about that because they themselves don't understand the order. And so they started amplifying it to a large group of people. And look, if you're on the ground and you're upset with the court's order, I have nothing to say to you. 100%. Right? But if you are a fucking meme page, right? If you are somebody who runs a meme page or whatever, like, yeah, maybe just chill on the commentary of this legal analysis. 100%. 100%. And that's, I think that's, that's also a really important point to bring up, Michael. Anybody's feelings on the ground are completely 100% relevant. And I'm not here to try to say that they're wrong. It's not my place. I'm just here to provide the legal analysis because some people want to know what the legal analysis is. Those little garden gnomes in black robes, they're not going to be liberating Palestine. I'm talking about the judges. Okay, I'm like, who's the garden gnome in black robes? What? Yeah, like they are not going to liberate Palestine, but they are going to start building a bank of, a bank of evidence, right? A legal trail that proves that genocide has been committed, is being committed. It's not an overnight process, and I understand people's frustration because there is urgency. Counter to the occupation's legal argument, there is a ton of urgency, and we do feel that as well. We know that, but we are also students of the movement and students of history. It's a long struggle, right? It's a marathon, and people have just gotten involved, and they're treating it like a sprint. Right, and I think also, like, Again, this I'm we're doing this episode now. It doesn't mean that I'm going to sit here and talk about this judgment for every episode. It, that's not the point of this. The point of this is not to keep talking about this. I want to just have this out there 
And then we're going to go back to covering what's happening every single day in Gaza because that's what's important in the last 24 hours since the order was rendered. Israel killed nearly 200 people and the conditions in Gaza continue to get worse and worse and worse and people are starving and people are cold and people are dying, starving to death and from freezing to death. And it's and and the and and there's and Nasser Hospital has been besieged and has been attacked. And, and Dr. Mohammed Harar is inside there and he's been tweeting help from the world, asking the world for assistance in the same eerie way that the doctors at Al Shifa Hospital tweeted out to the world asking them for assistance when they were getting attacked and shot at and and sniped and and when Al Shifa Hospital was getting bombed and there was they had to dig a mass grave and 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 bury nearly 200 people and then is the soldiers came and then they dug up the grave and they stole 80 bodies and then they brought them back to the south and i mean like nothing i'm saying here on this episode is to lessen that reality the lived experience of people in Gaza because none of, none of this is relevant to that it's not going to change their material reality as i said it's just one tool in the toolbox so I'm analyzing it for what it's worth, but I fully understand people's frustration that it couldn't compel Israel to actually stop. And and yeah. I think and, and and so that's the point that you... I wanted to make, which was that I think that people's frustration when it comes down to it, some people, like you said, were frustrated that this word was not in there, but then you know they didn't really understand that that wasn't what this was about. But I think that more than that, people's frustration if they are frustrated in this moment by the decision is the fact that it couldn't stop Israel. Like Israel can just say, we're going to ignore it and keep killing. And that seems like it shouldn't be allowed to happen, right? If you have something called the International Court of Justice, you would hope and think that in an ideal world, when a panel like the highest court in the land renders a you know an order and they say, stop killing mm. Palestinians, you would think like by default, that that means that Israel actually has to follow what they're saying. That is such a great point. People's frustration is actually not with the decision itself, but with them coming to the realization that there is no such thing as enforcement of international law. Correct. Right? Everybody is now being brought up to speed to the fact that the courts are actually... Mm, not the most effective, but they are a tool in the case, the long-term case dismantling the occupation, right? Correct. Like, have you ever seen The Wire? <sighs> Obsessed with The Wire. Okay. I so have not, but he has never stopped talking about it in the seven years we've been together. You literally need to watch The Wire, okay? Oh my God, Your husband wait. has amazing taste. Anyways, <laughs> really quickly, there's a moment where Omar is on trial. Omar is a guy who robs drug dealers, right? So he doesn't attack like civilians. He just robs people who are dealing drugs to the community. He's somewhat of like a Robin Hood type figure in the show. He's on trial. He is being cross-examined by a lawyer prosecution of some sort. You know, this lawyer is like trying to talk about how Omar's this bad guy who is like so involved in violence and he's just trying to like paint his character. And Omar says to him, Omar says, you carry a briefcase, I carry a shotgun. I'm more honest than you. And now I bring that up 
just to say right now in the struggle, in the liberation for Palestine, we are using both. This is the briefcase, right? What we are discussing right now is the briefcase. Ultimately, it's the culmination of the shotgun, the briefcase, and BDS that will bring about the entire dismantlement of the occupation. I think, you know, just to go back to that point about like people's awakening with what international law is capable of doing, it's not capable of overnight within 24 hours of the order being rendered requiring Israel to actually listen to the words that are in the order and stop killing Palestinians. But we knew that they would never listen. We knew that they would be in violation. And now that they are in violation for the paper trail, them being in violation of this order, right? It's it about opens them up to further litigation. Further litigation, but also like it's about the chain of events that will have that is capable of transpiring from here on out. And again, that's only in like the legal institutional framework. That doesn't mean that the grassroots has any less of an obligation to keep disrupting, to keep agitating, to keep pushing, to keep holding individuals accountable, to keep carrying out direct actions and occupying weapons factories and all of that. All of that needs to keep happening. And in fact, it needs to keep happening more than before, precisely because this order was rendered and this order is vindication and validation that the allegation of genocide is a legitimate one. I mean, we all knew it was legitimate because we've all seen it play out for three and a half months. But now to be able to say to the U.S., no, actually, you saying that this complaint was factually and legally baseless is you essentially gaslighting us because that's not what the International Court of Justice said. They said it was plausible, and the court is now deciding to move forward with the case on the merits. And so therefore, you, United States, cannot continue to fund and arm Israel. Because if you do, after having been put on formal notice by the International Court of Justice that Israel is in plausible violation of the Genocide Convention, you open yourself up to further litigation and actions and isolation. And so then the U.S. will have to think twice. And if they don't think twice, then we're going to have to force them to think twice. Can you talk about the lawsuit that was just filed in yeah. the Bay Area? The lawsuit that was filed by the Center for Constitutional Rights in California, in federal district court, is actually highly relevant here. Because now those Palestinian plaintiffs who have actually sued the Biden administration for their complicity in Israel's ongoing genocide in Gaza can now say to the US federal court, well, there's actually proof of complicity in genocide because the ICJ has found that there's a plausible case of Israel violating the genocide convention. All these UN agencies have found it. All of these genocide scholars have found it. And so therefore the US knows that it's likely that, that, that Israel is committing genocide. They can't deny that. And yet they continue to arm and fund Israel. And so therefore that is proof of the US's violations of its own obligations under the Genocide Convention. So it becomes this additional piece that they can bring into the argument to further their own argument that the US is violating its own obligations. And that is the key point here because this is gonna be relevant to every single state that has been supporting Israel, providing it cover. And, you know, we've always talked about like, what is going to make the house of cards fall? And it is removing one by one, those that aid and abet. Once you do that, the whole thing collapses on itself because the whole thing is only sustained by 
the support of external forces. It doesn't sustain itself. In the aftermath of the rendering of the order, U.S. cut funding to UNRWA, which at this stage, 112 days into the genocide in Gaza, is somewhere between complicity in genocide and actively participating in the genocide themselves by denying basic life necessities, because UNRWA is literally the, one of the only providers of any basic life necessities on the ground in Gaza. So you cut funding to UNRWA, you're also participating in the starvation and dehydration and killing of Palestinian civilians. It's like a cascade of legal decisions, right, that are rendered against various actors who are responsible for the genocide of Palestinians. And that builds a growing momentum. One of the Palestinians who is most openly critical of the ICJ decision was Mohammed al-Kurd. And uh, he, for example, posted on his stories, historic, huge, step in the right direction. Israel has been dealt a massive blow. And then a clip from a tweet about Gaza right now saying Israel kills 174 on the day it's ordered to prevent acts of genocide in Gaza. And then he wrote a comment that people are dying. And I understand the sentiment. And I think we should definitely, you know, make room for it. But I think the takeaway from that message is not so much, well, at least how I'm interpreting it, is not so much a rebuke of the order itself, but an attempt to keep us focused on not getting too hung up on celebration without continuing to put pressure. 100%. We yeah. obviously support that. Yeah. We support keeping our eye on the prize. Right, yeah. which is the total full liberation of Palestine, the right of return, so that people who have the deeds and the keys to their houses are allowed to return. Right. That's what our that's what everybody who we elevate and we associate with is focused on. I think his point was about the immediate need, not about that. Hundred percent. There's yeah. urgency. Yeah. He's talking about the urgency. The urgency. We right. respect the urgency. We know about the urgency and we are also in agreement that it's like, you know. It's a good step forward, but it's not it's not the end, right? It's not the end. It's not the end. It's and not that's, the end. So think, let's keep it moving. Let's keep it pushing and let's keep applying pressure to the occupation okay. in all forms. All forms of agitation and disruption ought to be applied at a maximum level right now. Correct. Rabia Arabia from Harvard, who wrote the article in Harvard Law Review that was not published and then later published in The Nation about genocide and, and Nekba wrote something, which I think was really helpful. He wrote, and I think this is consistent with Mohammed al-Kurd's analysis, which is, quote, we do not need to celebrate the ICJ ruling nor fixate on it. We can use it as another important notice of an unfolding genocide and keep pushing for a ceasefire now. I think that's the the, the essence of Mohammed al-Kurd's commentary, which was like, no need to fixate on it because it's not the end. Absolutely. So I just want to say that as well, because I don't but... want people to come away from this being like, oh, well, she's just thinking that it's so great. No. I'm I'm actually trying to intentionally go on record as as saying it's good, but now let's see what we can do with it and let's not get hung up on it. I also saw a string of messages in exchange. Uh, someone published it where someone asked, what did you think of the ICJ ruling? And somebody replied, if we don't take this victory, they will make it theirs. That's what they're good at, taking what's not theirs. And so it's like, sure. Yes, this ICJ ruling is not the end. Everybody knows that, especially the people who have actually read the legal decisions. They're trying to spin it as a win. 
the court ruled almost unanimously against them. And they are continuing in their delusion to just like lie to people and hope that people will believe their lies, unwrapping their delusion to the public. Organizer in New York City for Within Our Lifetime, friend of the pod, Nardine Kiswani, was violently arrested and manhandled by New York Police Department. And this comes a day after she and the organization released a report about the harassment that their organization is facing from the police department. Now, let us remind you, New York Police Department, one of the most racist, most volatile, most disgusting police departments that exist in the country, and that is honestly a very high bar. They also have 13 offices, which include offices overseas, inside occupied Palestine. It's a clear retaliation for publishing a report that accurately portrays their illegal criminal harassment of First Amendment protected activity, the right to protest. She was arrested and released on January 26, 2024. Was she charged? I'm not sure. It's possible that they just wrote her a summons and cut her loose because I was calling central booking every 30 minutes to find out if she had been booked anywhere. They hate me at various New York precincts. And let me tell you, gents, it's mutual. (laughs) I was calling various precincts and I was like, do you know if Nardine Kiswani was booked in your precinct? And they were like, I wouldn't know anything like that. And I said, you wouldn't know anything? If a high profile activist walks into your precinct in cuffs, you wouldn't be aware of that? They were like, I don't know anything. And I was like, well, that tracks, honestly. I sent some kids books over to the precincts at NYPD, and I hope they start reading. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Check out our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have as good a day as you can. And please join the Patreon. We can start telling people to join the patreon the show wouldn't be possible without a patreon you gotta get on our patreon support us on patreon you can you know because like i've been watching all these other podcasts and they just keep plugging patreon like all the time yeah i'm gonna clip what you just did right now (laughs) okay